It's fine, I've lived in Africa. Not a problem. <laughs> Rianne, can you come up here? Hairless one. <laughs> I saw you check it out. Very cool, right? No, yeah, come up here. Come up here. I'll let you speak into that. Come on. I know. Can you put this? Why on earth did you do this? It's in your notices if you haven't got it from last week, but I just want to remind you of this. Yeah. Um, I'm doing it to raise money for the East African famine. I don't know if anyone's seen it on the news like once three weeks ago or something. Yeah. And it isn't really... People don't know much about it because people don't really want to know much about it because it's really uncomfortable to know, I guess. So if you haven't heard, babies are dying, 30,000 of them. They're just left on the streets to die. People malnourished and everything. It's just going to get worse. Uh, if there's no rains this year, it's going to get even worse. They've got half the money that they need um, to feed the people, just to give them the basics. And if they don't get the other half, then those people just die. So she lost her hair to raise money. So if you want to give uh, in a particular way, support her loss of hair, and that money will go through. Which it's really soft too, if you want to touch it. <laughs> Pastors get in trouble when they do that. <laughs> but what I'd like to do is to pray for this whole situation and to ask God's blessing on it and that people will give money for that. And also to pray for Tom, that God will continue to bless him, particularly in this next week, and that the Lord might protect him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this witness that Rand's made for your sake, that she might give up something for others. Father, that each of us might be prepared to give up that which we have to care for the most vulnerable, those who are dying, the ones that you care about. Father, I pray that money will come in and that these people might just live Father, we pray that that money might come to them in Christ's name, that they might have life and have it for life eternal as well. But Father, we, we pray might have hearts of compassion, that we might actually care, Father, that we might weep. Father, we pray that even more in our nation, people might find concern for this, which is so far away from them and so outside of their understanding. By the way, so I pray for Tom. We ask that in this next week you might continue to show yourself to him in a fresh way. Father, we ask that you protect him, that you strengthen him and guide him, that he might see as he's made this step in obedience a clearer way forward even as to how he might even more faithfully serve you in the future, that Christ in him might be shining out to this world for your glory. Father, we pray that you will encourage each of us to encourage him, to keep him accountable, to help to equip him for life as a man of God. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. That was for the hair, not the prayer. We... Um, Oh, thankfully I can't see the clock down there, so that's good. Um, we're coming now to the second in the series of eight sermons on the Holy Spirit. And we are going over last week and the next eight weeks to go through these topics. The first was God with us. That's what we talked about last week. And tonight we are his people. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is in us, God with us, we are his people. And then next week we'll be looking at the fact that one of the things that he does in us as the people of God is that he strengthens us and he guides us. He works in us. He works through us. He works in the world. And then lastly, that let's not hinder the work that he's doing. So that's last week and the period here. But tonight, the Holy Spirit, we are his people. Someone said to me, uh, last week at the end of the sermon that it just seemed like I had a couple of Bible verses which I read out and kind of strung them together. Um, that's just good preaching. All right? <laughs> so you'll be happy to know we're going to touch on a, a whole lot of 
Bible passage, but hopefully as we, as we work our way through it, we will understand more what it means that because of the Holy Spirit with us, God with us, that we are his people. And first what I want to do is to go back and just relook a little bit at the fact that God is with us, but touch on it in the phrase that we have been baptised in the Spirit. We are his people because we have been baptised within by the Spirit. If we read Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says this, I baptise you with a water for repentance. This is John the Baptist. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, we're going to look... the baptism of the Spirit in, in the scriptures of the, of the eight, seven or eight times that it's mentioned, almost all of them refer to what happened at Pentecost. And if we look at this one, this comment that we'll be baptised by the Spirit, it's very interesting, this is just an aside by the way, to note the timing of Pentecost. Pentecost was the Feast of Tabernacles, which was when they brought the sheaves and waved them before the Lord, the, the, the harvest coming before the Lord. And we talked about this last week, that is, Christ was enthroned in heaven, the Spirit came. Acts chapter 1, verses 5 and 8. This is Jesus speaking. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' comment on what's happening at Pentecost. That What we talked about last week, the coming of the Spirit, God with us. Jesus uses it in this phrase, we are baptised in the Spirit. He's, we're going, they're going to be baptised with the Spirit and the Spirit's going to come upon them. And in that process, as they become the people of God, which we'll be looking at this evening, they go out into the ends of the earth. Third verse, Acts chapter 11 verses 15 to 17. This is Peter talking. It's one of the times when... Anyways, we get back to it. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? This is Peter's reflection as he looks back at Pentecost and he's just been amongst the Gentiles and as he had, they have come to faith in Christ Jesus in the same way in which God's Spirit fell on the Israelite nation who was meeting there, those who were um, the followers of Christ at Pentecost. It came upon the Gentiles and Peter says, Jesus promised that we would have this and this is what happened. And if he's done the same thing to these Gentiles, who am I to stand in the way? If these guys were also welcomed into the family of God by being baptised with the Spirit, having God's presence with them, then who am I to kick up a fuss? John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18, this is Jesus speaking, and he says this. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, this is just a reflection back to what we talked about last week. This is the promise of God that this coming of the Spirit of these people, knowing God with them, is something that was promised by Christ. And just lastly, two chapters later, I very, but very truly I tell you, It is for your own good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what we have is this historic event, Pentecost, where the Spirit of God came to be with his people. The passage that we read in Ezekiel gives us a little bit of an understanding of what exactly was happening. We talked about this last week, the fact that 
Christ is enthroned in heaven. He has completed the work that he was given. And Ezekiel gives a little bit of picture of what that was going to flow out from that in the people of God. So if we turn to, back to Ezekiel 36, let me read just a few of the verses that we had beforehand. For I will take you out of the nations, God says. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, says God. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is going to work amongst these people and he's going to change their heart. He's going to regenerate them. If you want. He's going to take out their, stone, their heart of stone. He's going to give them a heart of flesh. He's going to cleanse them and, he says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. The outcome of what happened at Pentecost is God makes for himself a people. Now we understand that God had the children of Israel, but God has always been going through them. They were to be a blessing to all the nations. Part of God's plan was that he would include in all those who came to understand who he was and to follow him. Now Paul in the book of Romans goes through and describes this, and I don't know that I actually want to read it all through, but in Romans chapter 11, 11 to verse 24, Paul has this imagery there of the Gentiles being crafted into the vine as he's looking at what God is doing. So what we have at Pentecost is God saying, okay, my people, I am going to cleanse them and bring them together, and he's got this discussion of the Messiah. We talked about this last week. Those who acknowledge the work of what Christ has done, from those he makes himself his people, makes for himself his people. He changes their hearts and he pours out the Spirit upon them. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 1, 2 and 3. Acts 1 and 2. In Acts chapter 8, there are Samaritans who hear the message of Christ and they have the same experience of the Spirit of God filling them, of being baptised with the Spirit as they acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. They are grafted in to the people of God. In Acts chapter 10, as we read beforehand, the Gentiles are grafted in as Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. In each of these three examples, it seems God acts in a historic way to show to Peter and to show to those with the Samaritans, these people are my people. Because the same thing happens in each of those cases. As God has promised through his prophet Ezekiel and through Joel, that I will make for myself people. Which is why Peter can say, how could I stand back if God is making them his people, whom I to stand against that? Just as an aside, there's one other time John's disciples, people who have been followers of John but have heard nothing about Jesus, all right, they come in Acts chapter 19 and they also have this same experience where having acknowledged the Lordship of Christ, they are gathered in out of that group of people who wanted to follow God but had no understanding of the lordship of Christ and they also experienced that. And so what we have here is that it's been publicly established from the apostles and for the church to understand that the world has now been grafted into the people of God because God lives and dwells with them. And then if we go back and understand what happens in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, because this is true, because I now have my people, Christ, in you, it's going to be taken to the whole earth. The church then are his people. We are his people. Just a very short aside here. We have to be really careful not to individualise this too far. We live in a generation which says, what's in it for me? I'm his people, no, I'm his person. We like that because then we say, what's in it for me? Or how can 
I be filled with the Spirit or must I be baptized with the Spirit or must I have this? These are the sorts of questions we start to ask ourselves. What steps do I take to make certain of this for me? It's interesting historically, if you look at preaching and if you look at uh, commentaries and all those other sorts of things, until the printing press came about, when everyone was able to hold the scriptures in their own hands, most of the preaching and most of the writing, if not almost all of it, had this idea as, what is God's plan for the church in this? What is God's plan for the people of God? Since the 1700s, we're a little bit more interested in saying, What's God's plan for me? And we try and separate ourselves from the people of God. You get this huge movement at the moment where someone says, I can be a Christian and not participate in the people of God. I can be a Christian on my own. And we have to understand that what God is doing, beginning at Pentecost and then coming down through the ages, is he has made us his people. How? Because the Spirit of God dwells within us as we have come to Christ. We too, individually, we'll get this a little bit, have been baptized by the Spirit. We too have been changed. We are now the people of God. Going back to Ezekiel, and now just we could read that again, just let you have a look at it on the screen. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities, idols. I will give you a new heart. And then right down at the bottom, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. Note, as we think about this becoming God's people, corporately and individually, it's God's initiative. This is what God is going to do. As we look down through the history of the church, God is drawing individuals into the people of God. He takes those who were amongst the Israelites, those who come into Jerusalem, people who wanted to follow the God of Israel. And of those who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, they are blended into his people. You are my people. The Samaritans those who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, who have been regenerated, who have come, been made clean by the blood of Christ. He fills them with his spirit. They now have God with them. That makes them a part of the people of God. This is what God is doing as he goes through history and makes the people he wants his people. Romans 9 has an image of this. I've cut out bits and pieces of this, but just to get the main thread as you're going through Romans 9, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that we have new birth from above in the purposes of God according to his purposes. So as, as we come to Christ, this is God's desire for us. Some people think that, that that kind of takes our volition out of it. For me, that's amazing. This is God's purpose for me, but this is God's purpose for us that we become his people. We were not a people, and now we become a people. Galatians says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are clothed in Christ. When God sees us, he sees Christ. I'm not an Australian Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm not a male Christian. I'm a Christian. This is what we are. We become his children. That's the defining thing about us. We are his people according to his purposes and his promise. 
because Christ is ours. John chapter 3 says this, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. We're clothed in Christ, born of the Spirit. As we try and work out what is the work, one of the works of the Holy Spirit, it is this, that he is the one through whom we are born again, through whom we are clothed in Christ. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand the fact that we are God's people because not only the work of Christ, but that the work of Christ is applied to us through the Spirit as we are his people, then we kind of lose some of the implications that come through from this. Lastly, I think, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. We have been made into the people of God by his design. But note also, God's initiative in making us into his people is melded with our response to God. We don't understand how that melding happens. But let's just have a quick look at the fact that for us to be his people, it's his initiative to change us, to mould us, to renew us, to give his spirit to us. He does that because he wants us to be his people. But we are to respond in faith. Remember Peter Uh, In Acts chapter 2, he says to the people, Therefore all Israel, be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They hear the message, Jesus is Lord. And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Here you get this melding of these two ideas together. Those whom God will call have to respond. They need to repent. They need to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and then they receive God's gift, God with us as they are included as the people of God. Romans 10 again says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. This is God's initiative. Ephesians says, In him we also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And also you who were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So what? God makes us his people in Christ by the Spirit through faith. By the Spirit we have entry into new life, but not only new life, and I think this is the point about the fact where people, we also enter into a new community. We are made one with Christ and we are now the people of God. Boy, there's lots of Bible verses tonight. Isn't that great? Romans chapter 8 says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
we, by the Spirit, have now become the children of God. And what do we do? We cry, Abba, Father. That Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we're children, we're heirs, etc., etc. So the Spirit of God, who comes to us and makes us God's children, does what? The fact that he is within us, he makes us a part of the family of God, a child of God, a son or daughter of God. This gives us, brings us, assures us, guarantees us assurance. I don't know how many people I talk to and they say sorts of questions like, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure when I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. What the scriptures say is that we call him Father because of the Spirit who lives within us, who assures us of the fact that we're his children. And through the Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father, because his Spirit dwells within us. He not only dwells within us to make us a part of the family of God, but he confirms for us as a seal, as a guarantee, that we are the children of God. Galatians says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So we call him father rather than being a slave. The example I normally use for this is actually a very personal one for me. I have four natural siblings. Well, they're a little unnatural at times, but four siblings born of my mother and father. I have one sibling who's adopted. His name's Desta. He grew up as, as a, a street boy down in a, a rural town in Ethiopia. He lived at the garbage heap outside the back of the hospital where my father worked. There were lots of street boys in the area. Now, I don't know what you know about mission life. Mission life is normally when we... Yes, you interact with the people, but you kind of live often as a family a little bit protected so my, my parents used to live in a, a warding compound. Most people lived in a warding compound. And normally because of um, crime and other sorts of things, there were people at the gates to make sure that only people who were safe were allowed to come in, especially when they were resting. You know, lots of people were able to walk through and meet them during the day, but at night times you wanted to keep things safe. And so there was guards. Most street boys, as they walked up to that gate, were stopped. They were street boys. But Desta was an adopted child. He was no longer a street boy. He was now a son. And so all the other street boys would walk up and the guards would stop him. He'd just walk up and he'd just saunter right through. He'd walk into the house, turn on the television, listen to the thing, make himself a drink, get some food out of the refrigerator, do what he liked. Why? He's a son. He was no longer a street boy. His relationship with not only my parents, but with the whole community, changed. He struggled at times to not live as a street boy. And if you ever meet him, if he ever comes down here, you'll see there's still a little bit of street boy in him. Still a little bit of street boy in him. All right? But he's not. He's a son. He's a brother. And it's a change that happened at the choice of the father. I'm going to make you my son. I'm going to make you my child. It was accepted by Destiny. Sure, <laughs> I'll take it. Right? God gives us this opportunity because of what Christ has done by giving us the Spirit of God that we can call him father rather than being slaves. An amazing privilege. 1 John chapter 3 says this, 
And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. In other words, God's spirit makes it plain to us that we are his. The work of the spirit, one of the works of the spirit, and we're going to have lots of them, is to make it plain to you that you are a child of God. So the work of the Spirit is in your life to know that you are his child. 1 John chapter 4 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. What he says there is because the Spirit of God lives within us, we know it. We know we're his children and we rely on it as we go through life knowing that we have God with us is an assurance that we are his child and we can rely on that through whatever comes in life. 1 Corinthians 2. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. No joke. God's not tricking us on this because the one who is in us to tell us that we're his child knows what he's thinking. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, how do I actually know that what a message that I'm getting is real? How do I know that what I'm feeling is right about whether I'm his child or not? Because God himself dwells in you and he's the one who gives you this assurance, who dwells it up within you. Yes, I am a child of God. And how do we know he's right? Well, because he's like thinking God's thoughts because he is God. God doesn't lie to us, but he's not going to lie to himself either. And even if he kind of had that thought, which he can't, his spirit can get right into the very middle and find exactly what God thinks. This is what this thing so there's no opportunity for him not to know. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We are in him. His spirit is within us. We are saved. We are sealed, done with, stamped. We are his children. There's no going back on it. We'll get to that later on in the next few weeks. But we doubt. If God's spirit lives within me and the purpose of him living within me, one of the purposes of him living within me is that I might know that I'm his child, why is it that I doubt? Is that a question that came to your mind? Did you think I don't know if you ever doubt. I mean, I've been a Christian now for 33 years. I doubt sometimes, every now and then. It's like, particularly when the house is empty or the office is empty, you just kind of wonder, did he come? <laughs> and you know you shouldn't have those thoughts, but you kind of think, is it, is it real? I think there's a spiritual corollary to what's called the hedonistic paradox. This is getting a bit into philosophy for those who are interested. The hedonistic paradox says this. This paradox, this is by Trueblood. He's a writer in philosophy. That this paradox, long acknowledged by philosophers, is the observation that the surest way to miss happiness is to seek it directly. When happiness comes to a person, it's usually come as a byproduct rather than as something which the individual directly and expressly aims for. 
We see this happening in the world. If I seek after happiness, I'm most likely not going to find it. But if I have a really loving family and that's what I seek for, I'll find happiness. If I seek after happiness, I'm probably not going to find it. But if I have good relationships and I'm content with my life, I'll probably be happy. If you actually search after this, it's likely you're not going to find it. I think there's a spiritual corollary here, and I think this is kind of what Scripture teaches. If we seek the Father in prayer, we cry out to him in prayer, Abba, Father, assurance comes and the witness of the Spirit takes place. As we do what the Spirit guides us to, to pray to our Father in heaven, we have assurance because that's the job that he works out in us. Another example might be, in living a true life to Christ in obedience, assurance comes and the witness of the Spirit takes place to us. As we're obedient, God's Spirit says to us, you're his child. God's Spirit working within us assures us that we're his. But if we keep seeking some sort of assurance, I want to be sure, I want to be sure, we'll probably miss it because that's not the way that the Spirit works to give us assurance. So very, very briefly, two practical applications of being a child of God and how this assurance works out. Very quickly. It doesn't mean if we doubt that we're an unbeliever. It doesn't mean. What it means is that some of the truths to which the Spirit is leading us, we're ignoring and we're going to get to these over the next few weeks, but very briefly. It could be that we're just a little bit ignorant. Nobody likes being called ignorant, but sometimes we are. We forget. God has said it. He has promised it. His presence within us confirms it that we're his children. All of that in terms of his promise says you're mine. You know that. You've read it up there on the screen from the scriptures. You have your Bible. Take it home. Get those verses. Read them out. That's what God says. And yet you kind of ignore it. Or you forget it. Or you don't have faith. We don't know it here. If we did know it and we trusted God, then we would confidently say, as his spirit lives within me, my belief on the name of Jesus Christ, I declare with my voice in my heart that he is Lord. I know his spirit within me and I know I'm his child. We could declare that with confidence. It could be just the fact that we get tempted. We feel the pull of sin on our lives. I know a lot of people as they feel that pull of sin on their life and they, they sin, they worry, am I really a Christian? Or maybe it's just an uncertainty because they don't have a flashy testimony. <laughs> Love Tom tonight. He hasn't been in jail, nothing criminal. And the other positive thing that I was going to say here was also that other bit. A lot of people worry if they don't have a date. You know, it was on the 15th of May, 1972. I was in the garden under the begonias and that's where I gave my life to Jesus. And I think if they can't pinpoint it for some reason, there's just this uncertainty about it. You know, I don't know how many people I've met who, I've asked them, are you a Christian? They said, well, I've come forward five times, but I'm still not sure. And you think, okay. It kind of halfway goes back up to ignorance at times. God has promised... And you say, well, maybe I'm not sure if it is my heart at work or if it's just um, whatever. There's just that uncertainty that's there. Be confident. I'm not just going to leave it here telling you all the reasons we've got doubt. There is going to be some positive in a second. Well, maybe it's the trials that we go to through. How can I be a believer and I have this stuff happening to me? That just How, how can God treat me like that as his child? Or... Maybe it's just simple disobedience. How can I be a believer and do this and think this? We know what the truth is, but we don't do it. So what I want to look at is what are some of the evidences that we have the Spirit within us? What are some of the ways that we must live so that we can have the certainty that the assurance of God working within our life is there, that we are his child and we don't need to doubt? 1 John is, is a great book to help us in doing this. And I've just picked a few verses from 1 John to help us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1a says, 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So to know assurance, number one, believe in God. If you're here tonight and you have never done what Tom has done, which is acknowledge that Jesus Christ is his Lord, what I have done and what many of you have done, if you're at that stage where you haven't actually believed in Christ in your heart, with your mouth, then know this, you have no assurance of salvation. You can't think you're getting there anywhere else. If you have not done that, then you are right to doubt whether you're saved. But the flip side of that is, is if you do believe and you have confessed and you do acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and you've accepted everything that he's done in the cross, know with a certainty Because as you declare that and as you believe that, the Spirit works within you to give you assurance of faith. It's a promise of God. So if you've done that, know. 1 John 1 verse 6 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Further on in 1 John it says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. How do we know we have assurance? Number two, not only must we believe in Jesus, but we must be sensitive to sin. Both of these verses talk about the fact that we have an acknowledgement of sin that's going on. Christians shouldn't sin. They shouldn't do that which is against the lordship of the Christ that they're following. When they do sin, they have confidence that they can go to Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness for their sin. If you continue to sin but you're not sensitive to that, if you don't recognise that you're disobeying God, if you don't come to him and ask for his forgiveness, if you're not sensitive and aware of what's going on, then you probably have some reason to doubt whether or not you're saved. Because Christian people are sensitive to their sin. We don't want to disobey our Lord and Master. It doesn't mean if you sin, you're not saved. Because we all sin. But what it means is if you sin and you don't recognise it, you just continue to do it. Or you see it and you think, he'll forgive me sometime. If that's your situation, you probably think, whoa, hold on a second. Christians don't do that. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. On the other hand, if you are sensitive to your sin, you recognise when it is that you fail him and you come before him in repentance and you say, Lord, I've done it. Even if you've done it for the tenth time that day, Lord, I've done it again. I recognise what I've done. Forgive me. You are sensitive to who he is as your Lord and Master. That is the Spirit of God working within you to say this is how children of God live. So if you want to know assurance, number one, believe in Jesus. If you haven't, do. Number two, be sensitive to sin. If you're not, begin to be. Look at your life as you go through life and say, is this something which pleases my Lord and Master? If it's not, I need to repent. I need to change it so that I can obey my Lord and Master. Number three, 1 John chapter 2, 3 and 4 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Number three, how do you know and want to have assurance? Obey his commands. You guys get commands of God every time you read the scripture. God says, this is what I want you to be like. He doesn't do that, just lay a hold on his He says, this is what I want you to be like because this is what my people are like. Desta had to learn a whole lot of things that street boys do that sons don't do. And I could go into them, but some of them are pretty gross. All right? You do that as a street boy, but you don't do that as a son. It's not just to lay down a whole lot of rules. It's just to say this is a different life that you now live. If you want to know that you're a follower of God, that the Holy Spirit working within you, obey his commands. If you know it's a command of God and you get to that situation where you know this is what God wants me to act and you go, nah, I think I want to do that, then 
you have probably a little bit of reason to toss up and say, mm, maybe I'm really not a follower of his. You've got some grounds for a little bit of doubt there. If, on the other hand, you obey his commands, then the Spirit of God gives you this assurance, I am a child of God. Now, we all fall and we all fail. That's where we recognize and we come back to God. That recognition and coming back to God and repentance is the work of God's Spirit within us. And as we turn back to God, we can, with assurance, say, I am his child. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. The fourth thing, how can you know assurance? Reject this evil world. Turn your back on it. The things that you know God doesn't like, reject them. Turn your back on them. If you want to know assurance of salvation, do that. Because as you do that, you know for certainty that the Spirit of God is working within you to change you, to transform you, to be like Jesus Christ. And you don't seek after assurance, but you have assurance because you know God's Spirit is with you, that you're his child, that you're part of the people of God. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. How do you want to know assurance? Love the people around you. You don't have to look at them right now. All right? But if you find you come to church and you have a look at the folk around you and you think, eh, man, why do I meet with this group of people? Losers. Music's no good. Teaching's strange. If that's the attitude when you come, where you think, man, I've got better things to do. Or you're talking with a person who's a Christian and they just always annoy you. Then I think the scripture says you've got a little bit of a reason to think maybe I'm not part of that family. On the other hand, if you find that you are loving the people around you, even the odd people around you, and you actually want to be with them, then what that means is God's Spirit is working with you and you say, hey, you're a child of God, they're a child of God. Families love each other. So you want assurance of salvation, begin to seek out ways that you might love one another because we are the family of God. We are the family of God and families are supposed to love each other. This is what John says. You want to know assurance? Believe in Jesus. Be sensitive to sin. Obey his command. Reject this evil world. Love the fellow believers. All of these are evidence that God's spirit is working within you. And as you notice that evidence working within you, you have assurance of faith. You have assurance that God dwells with you. Second last, I think. In fact, this is the love for God, 1 John chapter 5, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Number F, experience victory. I suppose to me, I think this is probably the biggest one that I use when I'm talking with people, and they say, I worry about my salvation. I said, go back and look at the last four or five months. Look at the last year. Do you see growth? Do you see change? If you do, you can have confidence that God's spirit lives in you because only him living in you brings victory. Only him living in you brings change. As you see your life develop, you know God's spirit is working within you. The change doesn't have to be life-shatteringly awesome because sometimes God works in a gradual way as his spirit works slowly within us to make us more like Jesus Christ. But if you look back over the last two years and you think I'm exactly the same person as I was then, I'm struggling with the same sin I was struggling with then, it really hasn't changed, I don't love anybody any more than I did then, then you probably have some sort of reason to think to yourself, maybe God's spirit ain't working within me and you can have a little bit of doubt running through mine. If that's true, I suggest you go through all of these and seek to put them into practice as your faith is worked out. Because Christians 
overcome and they experience victory. And don't think that suddenly reaches a plateau. Pastor Darrell, as he looks back at his life, should be able to see a growth. I, as I look back in my life, should be able to see a growth. Someone who's been a Christian for 60 years should not be plateauing and not having victory. They should be seeing an increase in their dedication to Christ as he works in them to make them into the image and picture of Christ. As that happens, as we see ourselves becoming more like Jesus, we have assurance that is God's spirit working within us. And there will be lots of other works of the spirits that we talk about over the next few weeks as we look at. So, God's spirit, God with us, means that we are his people. What do I want you to take away from this evening? One, have that as your assurance. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, know God's Holy Spirit lives with you, all of you. You've changed from being a slave into being a person of his. And that very fact should lead you to have an assurance that everything God has promised to do in and through you will come about that you're his, you have an eternal life, but you're going to be justified, sanctified, redeemed, etc. That is evidenced in your life by many things. Don't seek after assurance, because I think if you seek it, you're going to really struggle to find it. But seek to love one another. Seek to obey his commands. Seek to have victory over sin. As those things happen in your life, God's Spirit makes it very clear to you Hey, you know what? You're mine. And you're one of my people. And I'm your God. And I'm going to do amazing and wonderful things in you that you could never imagine. And this unspeakable joy will well up as you realize that you're a child of God, loved by God, cared for by God, and he dwells within you. I trust and pray that might be your experience tonight. And in the coming weeks, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that we have this privilege by your spirit in us to have all the benefits of Christ applied to us. That you, by your very action, changes, change our hearts to bring us to faith. I pray that you will help us to respond accordingly. That we will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ in every area of our life that we will declare it both with our mouth and with our lives. Father, I thank you that we are now your children, part of your family. I pray that you might help us to act like that. I thank you that your spirit is given, that we might be sure that everything you've promised will come true. Father, help us to see evidence of the spirit in our lives that this assurance will be made real to us. Help us to live like Jesus, declaring his praise, living in obedience and purity, having victory over sin and the world. For your glory we pray. Amen.